Psalm 61 was last week's study on security. This morning, Psalm 32, as we consider this theme of confession of sin. Daniel 9 is probably the most notable prayer of confession in the scriptures. But several psalms, the penitentiary psalms, communicate the spirit of brokenness over our sin. And this morning, from a familiar text, I want us to understand seven reasons to confess your sin. Now, there's an old theater adage that goes for storytelling as well. No conflict, no drama. It's a boring play. It's a boring story. It lacks drama unless there is tension, conflict. And ultimately, then, it comes to a climax and it finds its resolution. In our text, conflict is created when we cannot reach our goal because of some opposition. Ultimately, this is a gospel story. You, the main character of the drama, cannot reach the goal, a holy God and his perfect heaven, because of some opposition, in this case, sin. So the conflict is there. The characters of the story can't reach the goal because of some opposition. So now the drama begins. It began in the Bible narrative in Genesis 3, when sin created that conflict. And it's there in the language of the curse when God says to the serpent that the seed of the woman would be at enmity or conflict with the serpent. But eventually his promise is that conflict would be resolved because the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. That's good news. Good news so much so that theologians call it the first gospel. The first gospel in Genesis 3. The conflict would be resolved by God's gift to us. That gift would take on a name, Jesus, in the New Testament. And so we really do have a good picture of what the Bible message is when we think through this language of drama and conflict. In Psalm 32, the ultimate conflict resolution of the gospel proves to be a continuing resolution. Because every time we sin, ours is the opportunity to to see that conflict resolved in the sufficient sacrifice of Christ for our sin. And so we come in confession, acknowledging our sin before God and finding then his forgiveness. But here's what's at stake for us this week. If we harbor sin in our hearts and resist the conviction of the Holy Spirit, perhaps even today, then you will not know the promised happiness of the Christian life. Like Psalm 1, our psalm twice introduces this psalm with that word blessed. 
and strip away any hyper-spiritual meaning and just hear happy. In the truest sense, happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For night and day, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart." Our theme is simple. For your joy, confess your sin. Happy, blessed is the one who in confession finds forgiveness. Let's think through this morning seven reasons that Psalm 32 unfolds for confessing our sin. The first is found in our key word, our theme of verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the one, blessed is the man. Whatever else we will learn about confession, we know from the start that our happiness is contingent upon confessing our sin. And so I can say on the authority of Scripture, if you haven't been a Christian who is confessing your sin, you've missed out on some kind of happiness. Oh, you might point to something that brought some kind of satisfaction or joy, but you are missing out on the blessedness, the full happiness of uninterrupted, unhindered worship with your heavenly Father. There's sin stacked up between you and the Lord that needs to be confessed in order for there to be this sense that the psalmist has of there is nothing between my soul, and the Savior. The hymn writer wrote of that. This is our first reason for confession. Confession leads to the joy of forgiveness, the joy of being forgiven. And what a lesson on forgiveness the psalmist gives us. First, the joy of forgiveness is set in contrast to the ruin of sin. I say that because the psalmist uses every word he can grab up to define our transgression against God. In verse 1, blessed is the one whose transgression 
is forgiven. He goes on to say, whose sin is covered. In verse 2, the Lord counts no iniquity against him. Now, there is nuance to these words, but hear them just piling on to help us understand we have fallen short of the glory of God. Transgression speaks of an act of rebellion, knowing the line and intentionally going past it. It's like the hunter who's climbing over the fence into another field to go hunting, and he sees no trespassing, but disregards it. We've done that. When God said, don't eat of this tree, in Adam, we all chose to do what was best for us. We transgressed. The psalmist speaks of sin being covered. That sin means we've missed the mark. It's falling short of this moral standard of perfection. God said, be righteous, be holy as I am holy, and we are not. We have fallen short. Iniquity speaks to the moral ruin and the corruption of the human heart. The psalmist says you take one of them, you take all of them, and it describes our condition. We have broken God's law. We have offended his character. We have heard his desire, his command, his will, and we rejected it. But once that darkness is understood, once we see transgression and sin and iniquity, now we can begin to understand what the psalmist is describing as this bright light of joy that comes when we understand that my sin, my transgression, my iniquity has been dealt with in such a way that I will not suffer the consequence. And so the psalmist describes forgiveness in three ideas. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. In the Hebrew, this is a word meaning a weight lifted. The Old Testament theology of forgiveness is anchored in this idea of sin being carried away. Some of you might remember the the, the novel written years ago about the, the, the mountain view of atonement in the Appalachian Mountains. The book was called The Sin Eater. And there was this mystical notion that they had of, of this one that would come and, and take the sin away, would symbolically eat that sin. But it was taken away. The Israelites had another picture. It was called a scapegoat. Because once a year, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle blood there to atone for sin. And then the other picture was outside of the tabernacle, where he would lay his hands on that one animal, and that animal would be led outside of the camp and led into the wilderness to wander off, the sin would be carried away. The scapegoat, helping God's people understand forgiveness. So Isaiah wasn't random in his language when he says, surely he has carried our sorrow, he has borne our iniquity. Isaiah was saying, he's the sin lifter. 
He's the one who carries it away. He's the scapegoat. Lay your sin on him and he will bear it outside of the city into the wilderness. You are forgiven. Blessed is the one whose sins have been transferred to the scapegoat. His transgression is forgiven. But he goes on to say whose sin is covered. This is the very essence of the word atonement. It's a covering. So when Noah built the ark, we're told he built it out of gopher wood. And then the text says he atoned the ark with a sealant, with a pitch. So this sticky tar type substance, I imagine, was was slapped on to the outside of all that lumber. It was covered in pitch. It was atoned for. Atonement means a covering. And so all through the Old Testament, the blood of the bulls and goats was sprinkled on the altar, was sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant. In the first picture of Passover, it was painted on the door of their slave homes in Egypt. It was the idea of covering This place is covered in blood, so the Spirit of God passed over it. People of Israel understood exactly what was meant by the language of covering. My sin has been dealt with. It's covered. It will not be brought up again. But the psalmist continues, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Some of you are intricately involved in the finances of your home. You as husband or wife, perhaps, kind of keep the books and you see what's going in and going out and you know where you stand financially. Some of you do that in your place of business. You understand debits and credits. Here, the psalmist uses, in the language of forgiveness, a a very business-like term. The Lord counts no iniquity to this one. The sin debt has been canceled. It's not been credited to my account. I go to my account and I find no record of sin. Well, how is that possible? When I know clearly I can remember all kinds of things I've done wrong. It's the official language of justification. Justification doesn't say, oh, you're not a sinner. It says you won't be charged with the record of your sin. You will be declared righteous. So to go to your account instead of seeing all your sin, no, that has been credited to Christ's account, and he has suffered for it on the cross. But his righteousness has been charged to your account. So the psalmist, using that idea of imputation says your sin will be imputed to the scapegoat and his spotless, blemish-free nature and record will be attributed to you. The Lord will not count iniquity against you. Each of these terms comes loaded with relief, elation, joy, with the exclamation of the hymn writer, how can it be that God would save a soul like me? 
Blessed is the one who is forgiven. Blessed is the one whose sin is covered. It won't be brought up again. Blessed is the one to whom God says, I will count no iniquity to you. Paul catches this theme of joy and he says, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's your standing if you've confessed your sin and are counting on Christ to be the scapegoat, the one who deals with it. So why confess your sin? Because it leads to this joy, this joy of being forgiven, a joy that is rooted in the work of Christ for us. Why confess your sin, number two? Because confession ends the heaviness of guilt. Verses three and four, the psalmist says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Now, we can't speak with authority as to whether this period of time was actually the time after David commits his adultery with Bathsheba and before the prophet Nathan confronts him. Oh, we could certainly recognize that that would fit but we're just not told authoritatively. This, this could be that sin and any other sin David would be referencing that was unconfessed. But to know that we've sinned and to not deal with that sin in confession leads us down this path that David describes as a path of silence, refusing to recognize what my sin really is. And David says, his bones wasted away through his groaning. And this isn't just circumstance. This is by design. Hebrews would call it chastening, the disciplining hand of God, because David acknowledges that it was God's hand that was heavy on him. This weight that produced groaning and this feebleness of structure, his bones are wasting away, that's by God's hand. In other words, it is the kindness of God that we feel guilt and the shame of our sin because it causes us to turn from it to the God who says he stands ready to forgive. But instead, we listen to the lie of the devil that God won't be forgiving and receiving of us, that Christ isn't sufficient to cover that sin. And so our next best option is to make it some kind of virtue to be someone who can claim guilt or shame. Brokenness. It's a good thing. That's the alternative. I can say, no, it's eating me up from the inside, or I can just be a victim of it. One of those paths will lead to the mercy of God. The other will lead further and further down the path of silent, wasting away, groaning all day long because God's hand is on us to steer us back to godliness. David would agree with Paul that no chastening at the present seems joyous. 
It's when you actually deal with the sin and acknowledge it before God that you get to the blessedness of verses 1 and 2. The great challenge for us is to reject the lie of the devil and believe what God says here. It's true that you can't sin and win. It never ends up well. You're not going to be happy. You're not going to feel good. But David says you don't have to live with guilt. You can escape it through confession. Confession of sin. See guilt as the hand of God that disciplines in order to steer us back to the path of obedience and joy. Most of us can probably speak to some experience of knowing we've sinned, feeling the conviction, and hating every moment until that resolution. Maybe even fearing the the thought of resolution. You don't want to tell your spouse. You don't want to confess. You don't want to acknowledge to your parents that you did something. You know, you, you think back to when you were a kid and you stole something from the store. And, and you just were eaten up by guilt. You don't know what to do. David says, that's the hand of God heavy upon us. My strength is dried up as by the heat of summer. Is your yard cracked and dry now after a few weeks and more heat coming? Drive home and see all the brown grass that just seems like a month ago was so green we were mowing it every four or five days and now it's dried up, crunchy and brown. David says, that's how my soul was, parched, and it was because of guilt. That kind of guilt is calling out from the text, enough, run to the Savior in confession. Number three, why do we confess our sin? Because confession demands agreement with God. In contrast to verse 3, David said there, when I kept silent, we have verse 5. I acknowledged my sin, and I will confess my transgression. And notice the direction of these verbs of articulation. I acknowledged my sin to you. Speaking to the Lord, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. This is why David elsewhere would say, against you and you only have I sinned. Even though the reality was his sin had affected an entire nation of people. The point is that is so far second. And that it only is a sin because it relates to my sin against God. It's it's the two great commandments. Love God with all your heart, soul, and might. But if you're doing that, you'll take care of commandment two. But the reality is it helps us to see that second command as well. Love your neighbor and don't sin against them. But every sin is ultimately at its core, not a violation of some other human and their standard. No, it's a violation of God. That's where sin is defined My 
acts against God. Here the psalmist is saying, Again, my sin is against God. I confess my transgression to the Lord. What this means is I come before God and I agree with him about what my sin really is. And I assure you, it's not a personality quirk. It's not just, you know, your cross to bear. It's not just, you know, the way you were raised or a bad habit. None of that is agreeing with God about your sin. So don't pray that kind of stuff. And don't talk about your sin that way. That's not how God talks about it. It's not pictured as just some genetic trait. No, the picture in the scriptures is, this is an offense against God that will cost you your life. So the psalmist is saying, I'd better get real articulate. I'd better be very precise here. It's not just I slipped up again. Oh, Lord, forgive me. I looked at porn again. So what? Let's get to what it really means. Lord, I don't believe you're good. And because you don't give me what I want, I go after it on my own. And I don't care about your glory. I care about myself. Now we're getting real. Now we're, now we're on the path of agreeing with God. Because what, whatever your sin is, God looks at that and says, that sin cost me the gift of my son, Jesus. So stop saying it's anything less than cosmic treason, the violation of God's law, which only can be resolved in the death of Christ on the cross. We have to get serious about sin. We have to agree with God about its severity, about its coming consequence, so that we can ultimately agree about the only remedy for it. Against you and you only have I sinned. David says, I acknowledge my sin to you. I will confess my transgression to the Lord. Agree with God about your sin and start getting back some of the happiness in your life. Blessed is the one who's forgiven. And how do we get that forgiveness? We acknowledge our sin to the Lord. Number four. Reason number four, confession secures us in the mercy of God. Confession secures us in the mercy of God. Verses six and seven are interesting. David says, I want, I want everybody to understand the, this joy that comes in forgiveness. The, the burden lifted, the sin covered up, my record clean of any wrongdoing. And so he says to all, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. That's interesting language. David is essentially saying, confessing sin And finding mercy is so satisfying, it's so relieving, it's so joy-bringing that every one of God's people should do it today. 
confess your sin. And then he says, at a time when God may be found. So let me ask you, when is the time to confess your sin? That is a time when God can be found. When is that time? The answer is short at first with some explanation. The the answer is now. The explanation is you don't really know what the answer to that question is when he may be found. David's point, and he says it elsewhere in Isaiah chapter 55, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. So when will he abundantly pardon? What is the window for that forgiveness? When will God hear this prayer of confession? The answer ultimately is we don't know except for right now. Confess your sin while you still can. The point, I think, that is backloaded on this timestamp is this. If you harbor sin in your heart and say something like, it's not a big deal, I'll confess it later. What makes you think you will have a time of confession later? What makes you think you're a Christian that God would even hear you later? What makes you think it's not too late and God is not near? And he will not pardon abundantly and he will not hear. David is now coupling joy with a sense of urgency saying, now is the time to repent. Don't put it off because you don't know what harboring sin in your heart will do. It might cost you eternity because you you develop this taste for sin and and you realize that's really what I want. And it draws you away. Beware, David says. Today is the day of repentance. The New Testament would echo that saying, today is the day of salvation. I can't say, wait till tomorrow. Think about it some more. Give it it some thought and see if it makes sense. That's foolish evangelism. The Bible says today is the day to confess sin. You cannot sit on it. You do not know what that will cost. But if you hear this admonition... And everyone who is godly offers that prayer now of confession. David says this, Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. This isn't just a random turn the page. We're done talking about confession. Let's talk about God who's a refuge and a deliverance. No, it's in the context of dealing with our sin. If you'll acknowledge your sin, the Bible is saying that whatever waters come as a consequence of dealing with your sin, let them come. You'll be safe. 
Because what matters is not what are the consequences of my sin here on earth. What matters is what is my standing with God? I know of a case of an extended family situation where a man in their church had been immoral with a minor and now it's been brought to light and they literally have to say, we have to go to the police. You have to turn yourself in. You have to walk away from freedom into perhaps lifelong incarceration. But David would say to that one, you will be secure in God. The waters will not carry you away because nothing in this life matters in comparison with being right with God, in agreeing with him about sin and its remedy in the Savior, Jesus Christ. But what does the devil do? He tries to get us to say it's not a big deal and you can deal with it later. There's always tomorrow. Now's not a good time. David says, confession actually secures us in the mercy of God. We are in the safest place we can be when sin is pushed into the light. So confess your sin while God may be found. Why confess sin? Listen to verses 8 and 9. Confession embraces instruction in righteousness. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be like the horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. David says, confess your sin, because the rejection of the wrong path inherently implies turning to the right path. So verses 8 and 9 are, are its own paragraph. God is responding. He's speaking to the psalmist who's cried out in confession. And God says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. Just don't resist my direction because that's what sin is. Hearing what God wants and saying, well, no, I think this way is better. Don't do that. Don't be like the horse or the mule that have to be led around by force, constantly reminded by the bit in their mouth of which way they're supposed to go. Otherwise, they'll go their own way. Some of you have been on those trail rides, and not even the bit helps. You can pull on that bridle anywhere. It doesn't matter. That horse is following the horse in front of it back to the barn. And once they're halfway and are on the way back, there's no stopping them for anything. You just hang on. You're not in control. You're, no, you're not horseback riding. You're horseback hanging on because they're just going one way. They're doing their thing. David says, don't be a Christian that gets so used to even the bit and bridle that you just do your own thing. When God is saying, I will instruct you and teach you so that you don't go down those wrong paths and deal with the weary, dry bones of guilt and shame. Just hear my instruction. 
True confession involves this change of direction, a change in behavior. We call it repentance. You can't confess sin and agree with God and not change your ways. That's not repentance. That's not confession. True confession is this expression of desire and direction. I don't want this. I want this. And we hear the instruction in righteousness. Obviously, built into these verses, then, is the great hope of not always having to confess. Because even that becomes so routine that we're like, oh, I'll just confess it again. I blew my temper, blew my stack. Oh, well, I'll just confess it. No, the idea is let's avoid confession by doing what's right, by following God's counsel and instruction, by not being a stubborn mule or horse. Let's do right and avoid the confession, but should we do wrong, David is going to quickly remind us, don't stay there. That, That is no way to live. Fight your way back to joy through confession. Why confess your sin? Look at verse 10. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Let me ask you, does verse 10 mention someone who confesses? We look at it and I guess we say no. So what virtue does it mention? The virtue that is mentioned is trusting in the Lord. So somehow here, the psalmist is trying to help us to see confession is tied to believing who God is and what he has said. And the great struggle of confession will be one of faith then. Do I trust the Lord? Number six, confession believes the truth about God. Oh, the wicked think they can cover their sin. And verse 10 reminds them, No, many are the sorrows of the wicked. You can't cover your sin and prosper. You can't bury it and hope nobody will know about it. Ask Achan how that turned out. So instead of believing these lies of the devil that we can hide, that we can cover, that we can make it right on our own... We need to believe what the Bible says about our sin and the God who forgives it. We need to believe that God sees everything and knows what we do and what we think. Will we be so foolish again this week to think nobody knows what I did? Will you believe that God is merciful and ready to forgive, that he is faithful and he is just to forgive our sin when we repent, when we confess. So reject the lie that it would be better to cover your sin. That will not work. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. In this theme of confession, remember that promise. Steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts the Lord. 
There's a reason you don't like to apologize to people, and it's often because you're afraid you'll never hear the end of it. They won't be good at forgiving, so it's going to be brought up to you again and again, and that's wrong on their part. But it's also wrong to not confess because we think that may be the case. It just shows how sanctification is, is hard. But why do you think God won't forgive your sin? Why would you think that there is any other option when you misstep, when you sin? Why would you think there's any other option than acknowledging that to the Lord and confessing that? Don't trust yourself, your own thinking, and certainly don't listen to the devil. Instead, trust what God has said. And he says here, his steadfast love, a love that will not fail you, even in this matter of forgiveness, will surround the one who says, here I come again. I've sinned again. I've blown it. Lord, this is what I've done. Forgive me. Why does the Bible, or why would we think the Bible says anything other than our God is gracious and merciful and ready to forgive? That he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We end with the repeated refrain. It began in verses 1 and 2, blessed, blessed. And it ends, verse 11, be glad in the Lord. Rejoice, O righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Well, who are those that are righteous and upright in heart? Here we are confessing our sin and we're, we're beat up by it and we know we're a mess. But is that what the Bible says about us in Christ? Or does it say we are righteous and upright in heart because we are hidden in Christ Jesus who is upright in heart and righteous? It's his uprightness. It's his righteousness that is in our account. Remember back to our words about forgiveness in verses 1 and 2? Our record is not one of sin. At that moment of forgiveness, our record only shows the virtue of Christ. So rejoice, you who are in Christ, you are seen by God as righteous. Be glad. You're counted as the perfect ones. Rejoice that when you stand before God, he will say, wow, you're perfect. Enter into perfect heaven. You belong here. And you'll know exactly what he means, that your perfection is borrowed. It's someone else's perfection, but it counts as your own. Be glad, rejoice, shout for joy, because God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. Blessed you are today. Leave here with a spring in your step. If you've confessed your sin, you are forgiven. Your sin is covered, and God does not count it to you. Psalm 32 gives us seven reasons or six, if you notice one and seven were the same. 
reasons to confess our sin. But just know that the devil will have his list as well for why you should not. God won't be pleased with you. This will make you look really bad. People won't forget. You're just going to do it again. Others will judge you. You've asked way too many times. The consequences will hurt too much. And the reasons could go on and on for why we would reject Psalm 32 and the joy that awaits those who confess their sin. And so the battle is on. We've drawn a line in the sand saying, yes, let's confess our sin. I think I know know the reasons from Psalm 32. And the devil's going to say, what about these reasons? And it's going to sound like a great debate in your mind, but don't let it go there. Let steadfast love surround you as one who will trust in what God has said about confession. Come back to this psalm and argue for what is true. Close with the wisdom of Proverbs 28, 13. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we confess that our sins are many, but we rejoice because we believe your mercy is more. We rejoice that by faith in Jesus Christ, we stand forgiven at the cross. We've sung of these truths, the blessedness of sin forgiven. Now may our minds receive the truth of your word, that by confession of sin, we are restored to you. We know that joy that should be ours in our salvation. Lead us into continual repentance. Lead us into this ever-deepening appreciation of our forgiveness in Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray, amen.